think they're all insane. Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. This is the last episode in our UBI series. If you haven't listened to the first three episodes, please do, because things probably won't make sense. But just as a quick recap, the first episode went through what UBI is, its history, evidence. The second went through why some progressives advocate for UBI. And the third looked at libertarian support for the idea. But it would be disingenuous to end the discussion there. Other people think UBI is misguided, a recipe for disaster. So that's what we'll talk about in this episode. The big case against UBI, which we've already touched on, is that the fourth industrial revolution, or the idea that robots are taking all of our jobs, is unfounded. One person who believes this is Jason Furman, an American economist who Obama named as chair of his Council of Economic Advisors. It's a pretty big deal. Here's Jason Furman himself. Much of the premise for universal basic income is the notion that robots will take all of our jobs and that if we can't be employed, that we'll need something else, some money from the government to take care of us. People have thought this for a really long time. In the 19th century, 70% of our population worked on farms making the food that we needed to eat. If you had told them that 150 years later, almost all of them would not need to work on the farms, that less than 2% of our population could feed us, they would have wondered where all the jobs could come from. Today, machines do 90% of what workers could do 100 years ago, and yet the unemployment rate is a little bit below 5%, just like the unemployment rate was in the year 1900. Switzerland has a much higher employment rate than Italy. That isn't because there's lots of robots in Italy doing everyone's job, and Switzerland people build the cuckoo clocks by hand. As people get richer, it creates new jobs that you never could have imagined in the 19th century. It makes people want to spend more and support even more jobs. And consistently, people have said, just around the corner, there's going to be a disruption. And yet, we're currently in the longest streak of job creation that we've ever seen in this country's history. As mentioned in part two, This view seems to be mostly correct. Although automation might steal old jobs away from humans, it also creates new jobs. There's just one roadblock to the we've seen it all before argument. It's that the US participation rate is at a three decades low, down from its high of 67% at the beginning of the century to 63% over the past few years. To recap, the participation rate is just the percentage of people of working age who are either working or looking for work. Basically, the higher the better, because this means more people are contributing or trying to contribute to the economy. The participation rate also explains why low unemployment can be misleading. If unemployment falls while also decreasing the participation rate, it means that some people may have stopped looking for work altogether, which is a bad thing. So even though US unemployment is low, the low participation rate indicates that it's not all rosy. But it's important to note here that Even though the US participation rate is at a three decades long low, this downward trend seems to have ended and has even creeped up slightly over the last year, which could be the start of a new upward trend. 
So that's the participation rate point. The other key metric for this argument is productivity. As mentioned in part two, if robots really had started taking all our jobs, why is growth in labor productivity at a decade's low across the developed Western world? Countries such as the US, Australia, and Canada all report historically low productivity growth, indicating companies aren't adopting as much automation as people like Yang are saying. Another big point against UBI is the cost. How the hell is any country going to afford to pay all of its adult citizens a basic income, let alone proposals that include children? Now, you can do this calculation yourself to get an idea of the cost. Take the number of adults in your country's population. Multiply this number by the amount of UBI that would be reasonable to pay, and boom, this is how much money it will cost the taxpayer. For example, take my home country, Australia. Australia's adult population is roughly 19 million people. Multiply this by Australia's poverty line of 22,000 Australian dollars. This gives you a total of 418 billion Australian dollars. To put this in context, Australia's current total welfare and security spending is 180 billion. So to properly fund UBI, Australia would not only need to scrap all welfare and social security, it would also need to raise an extra $238 billion. That's another 13% of Australia's GDP in taxes. If you wanted to make the unpopular move of scrapping public healthcare spending in exchange for UBI, this would only fund half of this extra cost. In other words, Australia's current welfare and social security spending could only generate a UBI of just over $9,500 per year not even half of the poverty line. How affordable is it for other countries? According to The Economist, if you converted all non-health welfare into a UBI, seven Western European countries pay over 10,000 US dollars per year. The US only pays $6,300 per year. Britain, $5,800 a year. South Korea, $2,200. And Mexico, only $900. So clearly, some countries can afford UBI with existing spending, Others can't. To be fair though, these back-of-envelope calculations can be misleading and actually can overstate the cost. First off, most UBI proposals scrap tax exemptions, so you actually collect more tax. And second, there's an argument that if UBI replaces the welfare state's poverty traps, more people will work, which lets you collect even more tax. However, who's to say that UBI isn't a poverty trap in itself? With that said, how does Andrew Yang cost his UBI? With 234 million adults in the US, each receiving $12,000 per year, Yang needs to come up with roughly $2.8 trillion. So first, he imposes a value-added tax of 10%, which is estimated to collect $800 billion. That leaves $2 trillion. Next, $500 billion comes from savings on existing welfare programs since current welfare recipients must choose between keeping their current benefits or receiving UBI. So then that leaves $1.5 trillion. Another $300 billion comes from other taxes Yang's proposed, like a financial transactions tax and a carbon tax. We're now left with $1.2 trillion. This is where things get murky. According to Yang, the rest of this comes from savings in homelessness, healthcare, incarceration, and economic growth generated by UBI. So, safe to say, Yang's predicted savings of $1.2 trillion are a little optimistic. As Michael Tanner of the Cato Institute says, 
quote, to afford UBI, you'll need to find a way to fold Social Security and Medicare into UBI and significantly raise taxes. Yang's proposal seems to fall short of this. So basically, to summarize this point of cost, UBI is only affordable if one of three things happens. Option one, you scrap all welfare, including Medicare, and put it into UBI. And this is obviously more achievable for countries that already spend huge portions of their GDP on welfare, like Western European countries. Option two, the UBI pays well below the poverty line, which is less than ideal for UBI advocates. Or option three, you significantly raise taxes or go deep into debt, which can carry their own problems. There's just no way around these hard truths. Obviously, another big problem with UBI is its effects on work incentives, right? People will stop working if we just give them free money, no strings attached. French Catholic neoconservative Pascal Emmanuel Gobry imagines a world where people are, quote, listing away in social destructive idleness with the consequences of this lost productivity reverberating throughout the society in lower growth and probably lower employment. As we discussed in part one, the few experiments we do have on UBI, though not perfect, suggest that declines in work are small. If people do reduce or stop working, these people tend to put their time into other productive things like education. Survey evidence from the Swiss referendum reveals only 2% of people said they'd stop working if they had a UBI. Maybe it's good to ask yourself, would you stop working if you received a modest amount from the government? If you're on a good wage, it's going to be hard to quit your job and downgrade your lifestyle at this point. But the problem really isn't about the effects on people who are working and meaningfully contributing to the world. The real concern is about those who are, one, in between jobs, or two, only now old enough to enter the workforce. Will a group of 18-year-olds pool their UBI money together, rent a place in order to rip bongs and play video games their entire lives? This is the risk we're talking about. Maybe UBI will only amplify a welfare culture that already exists. At least the current welfare system makes it difficult for people to abuse the system. If the chains are off, who knows how many people will skip out on work forever. UBI makes it much easier to do nothing, especially if you've never known the value of work. This is something the experiments don't really tell us because none of them operated for long periods of time. Now, even UBI advocates can see that this might happen. But as Charles Murray argues, people will get over the weed and video games lifestyle after they realize there's more meaning to be found in life. I'm not so sure. It's doubtful that people will naturally get over this phase of their life. Something tells me that Charles Murray, a 76-year-old right-wing policy expert, hasn't played video games, and I don't think he realizes how addictive and fun they can be. Other UBI advocates have a different response. They argue being idle can be a good thing just like many great and creative minds have been idle over the years. Bertrand Russell wrote an essay in praise of idleness. Many historical figures have also benefited from idleness, like Galileo, Adam Smith, Charles Darwin, who apparently went on a voyage to HMS Beagle because he came from a wealthy family, whereby he had, quote, ample leisure from not having to earn my own bread. And as British author John O'Farrell points out, Anyone who ever created anything did so with a modicum of financial security behind them. That's why Virginia Woolf needed, quote, a room of her own and £500 a year. One thing you notice about this argument is the hint of condescension towards work, particularly unpleasant work. The argument seems to be not that people should be able to choose their job, 
but the people should be free to indulge in highbrow, creative and artistic work instead of spending their days as a checkout guy. It's as if these people think everyone is yearning to indulge in the creative arts, overlooking the fact that many everyday people aren't afraid to grind it out in manual jobs. Anyway, that's just my opinion on, on the situation. But putting this aside, the question really comes down to whether UBI adds or subtracts from the work disincentives built into the current system. Economists like Milton Friedman can see that UBI will carry work disincentives, but this would only be a problem if we were starting from scratch. But we're not starting from scratch. The current welfare system already punishes work with insanely high marginal tax rates, which we discussed in part three. Ultimately, that's where the debate stands. I get a sense that this particular point will be the battleground in which UBI plays out. Another argument against UBI is that welfare should be reciprocal, conditional, and means-tested. You shouldn't be able to get something for nothing. This is something called the principle of reciprocity in political thought. Basically, there are no rights without contribution and no rights without proven responsibility. As for means-testing, does it make sense to be giving handouts to rich people? Why would you collect taxes from them just so you can give it back to them through a handout? Others question why an able-bodied young man should receive the same amount as a disabled single mother. Surely their needs are different, which is why we need to means-test benefits. And without conditions in welfare, UBI devalues other forms of social security like the age pension, which people work their entire adult lives to earn. Others say UBI will produce inflation. If everyone has more disposable income, isn't this going to raise prices? Now, on this point, UBI isn't about printing money, but just redirecting funds already in the economy. So even if there is an increase in aggregate demand, this ignores any supply-side effects, which will help contain prices. Plus, many developed countries are struggling to stimulate inflation these days. So if anything, small increases in inflation will be a good thing. We've also touched on this, but other critics of UBI like billionaires Bill Gates and Peter Thiel, think UBI is a bad idea until productivity and automation ramp up. I mean, UBI makes a lot more sense if robots have already automated all human work, not when there's still lots of work humans can be doing. Another point is that the UBI will be wasted. People will just spend their money on alcohol and drugs, which is why we have food stamps. This is just an extension of the paternalist argument, the idea that the government knows best. Now, I didn't mention this in part one, but for some of the experiments we have in direct transfer programs within developing countries, in 83% of research cases, alcohol and tobacco consumption actually had fallen. Now, this is just one piece of evidence that we have, so it's not conclusive, but it is something. But this does bring me to my last point, which is that Along with the work disincentives, critics point out that UBI doesn't solve the meaning problem. Here's UBI critic and Silicon Valley angel investor Naval Ravikant again. Uh, another issue with UBI is that people who are down in their luck, they're not looking for handouts. It's not just about money. It's also about status. It's about meaning. And the moment I start giving money to you and put you on the dole, I've lowered your status. I've made you a second-class citizen. So I have to give you meaning. And meaning comes through education and capability. I have You have to teach a man to fish, not to basically throw your rotting leftover carcasses at him and say, here, eat the scraps. Mm. So it doesn't solve the meaning problem. And others add to this. 
Just because you have $12,000 a year, this doesn't answer the question, what are you going to do with your life? As I just mentioned, UBI advocates think if people drop boring jobs, they'll all of a sudden become artists, philosophers, entrepreneurs, or otherwise fill their time with meaning. But how many of these people quitting their low-paying jobs will necessarily become the next Picasso? How will they fill their lives? Even if their jobs were boring, at least it gave them a sense of purpose and included them in the community. Now, some say UBI will help them find meaning because with economic security, they have time to think about what they want to do with their lives. Sure, this could happen, but we have to acknowledge that for a lot of people, work is their main source of meaning outside of their family. Who knows what will happen when we give them a reason not to work? The final point against UBI, and probably the most interesting in my opinion, is what happens once we have UBI? Do people start upvoting how much they receive from the government? Isn't it only a matter of time before the bottom half of society votes themselves not just a basic income, but the average income in society? How will society be able to afford this? Is UBI a slippery slope to bankruptcy? While we simply don't know the answer to this, you can look at modern-day welfare states and say the same thing, right? Most of them, those administered and governed properly, haven't ended in bankruptcy, at least at this stage, so why would UBI be any different? And on this note, that's where I'll end the UBI series. Just some final points. As someone who spent lots of time looking at this issue, the debate clearly remains unsolved. First off, within UBI circles... Does UBI replace welfare, or is it a supplement? If it's a supplement, how will you pay for UBI without bankrupting the country? Second, and more generally, the debate is really a debate about paternalism. Should the government restrict how people will spend taxpayer money to avoid the risk that people will fritter this money away? Or do we trust people to make these decisions for themselves without government interference? These questions remain unanswered, but I hope I summarised where the debate currently stands and provided enough information for you to make up your own mind. Anyway, that's everything. See you next time. I think they're all insane. If you got value from this episode, please do me a quick favour. First, hit subscribe. And second, leave a five-star review if you're podcasting or hit the like button and the notification bell if you're YouTubing. There, too easy. See you next time.